Welcome to the IOMS podcast series, where we gather for conversations from top surgeons across the globe. In this series, we're exploring the history of the specialty from the unique point of view of each global region. How did the specialty evolve as a distinct area of practice? Who were the key players? Where's the specialty heading in the future? Stay tuned for insights into these questions and more. Let's listen in. I'm joined today by an esteemed panel representing the North American region. Let's meet them. Dr. Dillon, how about you start? Hi there. My name is Jazz Dillon. I'm a professor of oral and maxillofacial surgery at the University of Washington. I'm also the program director uh, in, in Seattle, and I've been here for 13 years. As you can hear from the accent, not originally from America, originally from the UK, um, having moved over. Dr. Booth? Yes, I'm Donald Booth. I'm Emeritus Professor and Chairman of the Department of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery at Boston University. I started there in 1970 and retired in the early uh, 2000s. Hi, I'm Ed Dorr. I'm from uh, Hamilton, Ontario, and I've been practicing in Hamilton for about 45 years and Assistant Clinical Professor at McMaster University. I'm Larry Nissen in private practice, Merritt Island, Florida. Been here 37 years and um, been involved in the association work for many years. Hi, I'm uh, R.G. and I'm an oral mastication surgeon practicing in Maryland. And uh, I am the current uh, treasurer of the IOMS, past president of the AOMS, and past president of the Commission on uh, Dental Accreditation, uh, and that's my background. Thank you so much, and welcome all. Oral maxillofacial surgery as a specialty has evolved as a distinct area of practice, but it wasn't always that way. Tell us when the specialty did distinguish itself as an area of practice, and how did that come to be in North America? Dr. Booth, would you get us started? I'd be happy to. Uh, I sort of first got introduced to... uh, the concept of oral surgery when I was just a, a youth, really, in the 1940s. Because my do- I went to my local dentist at one point, and he was late for the appointment, and he told me that he had just come back from the hospital. Now, I was unaware that dentists had anything to do with the hospital at that point. So in 1949, when I was in junior high school, I had to do a, a, a paper on my profession, so I picked oral surgery. And uh, so it was established enough so that it was present in the Britannica Junior. But what impressed me at that time was the average income of the oral and maxillofacial surgeon in 1949 was $18,000. So that sort of interested me. In 1946, there were, there were programs in the 40s, because I remember that uh, Walter DeGrelnick, who was the former chief at the Mass General Hospital, was an intern at Boston City Hospital in 1946. At that time, uh, there were one-year internships, I think, throughout the country. Uh, Kurt Tomer was chief of the uh, oral surgery department at Mass General. Tomer, unbeknownst to a lot of people, was not a real surgeon. He came from Switzerland as an oral pathologist and an oral radiologist. Uh, There was a program at Boston City Hospital run by Steve Mallett, who was essentially an exodontist. I really don't know a whole lot about the development of the specialty in the the 50s, other than the fact that the American Society of Oral Surgeons was formed, as well as the American Board of Oral Oral Surgery. And it was 
in the fifties that uh, in office anesthesia was uh, was uh, initiated. In the nineteen sixties, the training programs uh, changed to three years. Uh, the three years consisted of two years of hospital training and a year of didactic training. Now, at that time, you could take you know, two years of clinical training at separate hospitals. You could get a internship at one hospital and a second internship at another hospital and then take your uh, your didactic. Or you could start off with a didactic. There was no order, just as long as you continued uh, and had three years of the uh, of the experience. At that time, there were, to my knowledge, there were three rather large didactic programs, one at Tufts, one at uh, Pennsylvania, and one at Boston University. The one at Boston University being run by Dr. Kurt Toma, who at that time was well into his 80s. Especially, uh, certainly had become especially by that time, but especially boards, office anesthesia was, was essentially uh, part of every practice. Uh, in 1964, I joined the American Society of Oral Surgeons in Atlantic City. It was not until 1978, I believe, that uh, or 79 that the American Society became the American Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgeons. The big event in 1968 certainly was Dr. Hugo Obergeis's visit to Walter Reed Hospital in 1968. Uh, Bob Shirer was president of the ASOS at that time, and Scotty McCallum from Alabama ran that program, which was eye-opening to everyone who attended that. In the 1970s, uh, things changed again in our specialty. I started at BU as chairman uh, in 1970 because Boston University, like many other programs, had to conform to the new regulations, which, took, which would take place in 1972 where the three-year training program uh, had to be integrated. In other words, you had to do your two years of, of uh, hospital training and your one-year didactic program all within the same program. At that time, in 1972, when we went over to that three-year program, there were 124 programs within the United States. Uh, again, in 1978, the name changed from the American Society of Oral Surgeons to the American Association. In 1989, we had another change in uh, training, and the uh, four-year training program was uh, initiated. And at that time, there were 112 distinct programs within the United States. I think that gives you sort of a history of where things started. Uh, there was a, an interesting period of time within the uh, AOMS in the uh, mid-1990s. When, we, when the American Association had sort of a controversy with the International Association, which had been established uh, in the early, I think early, late 60s or early 70s. At that time, a, a group of uh, oral surgeons from uh, the United States and from uh, Europe met in Tenerife and put together a uh, document that would uh, have all oral surgeons throughout the uh, world trained as double degree specialties. Uh, this did not sit well with a number of areas of the, of the world, Tokyo, uh, Japan, especially, which was a single degree, the United States, which was single degree, as well as uh, South America. Dan Liu, who was president of the AOMS at that time, had a meeting in Bosom, uh, England, with uh, John Williams, 
who was at that time the Secretary General of the European Association to discuss the matter. And out of that meeting came the concept of regionalization of the International Association. So the world was uh, divided into North American regions, South American region, European, Asian, etc. Uh, the controversy still waged for another six years. And in 2000, uh, there was another meeting with Paul Stalinka, who was the president of the International Association, John Helfrich, who was the secretary general at that time, and uh, John Williams and myself. And at that meeting, it was decided that uh, each region would determine their own uh, uh, training requirements. And so that sort of... Uh, got that controversy out of the way and that that concept was passed by the uh, International Association in uh, Durban in uh, 2001. So as it stands now, many of the regions of the uh, world are still single degree trained oral surgeons while Europe continues and Australia continues to be double degree trained. So that's my input on the history of, of things. So I'll leave it to someone else to take it up from here. Thanks, Don. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Canadian training. And it, it really mirrors the, the American training in, in a lot of ways. Um, my dad was an oral surgeon and graduated in 51. And so he had the, the one-year program. They did a, a one-month training in anesthesia at Toledo at the McKesson Clinic there. And they got a diploma in what they called oral dental surgery. And most of it was, was dental alveolar surgery, along with the adjunct of general anesthetic, which, which was really popular and made a, a big difference to the practice. And again, in the late 50s, early 60s, it's a three-year program with a diploma in, in oral surgery and anesthesia. And the scope of the training was basically what you trained in the States, but it, it really depended on what program you went to, where the strengths were, and you could practice anything that you were allowed to, to practice by the regulators in, in the different provinces. And that, that's where the, the, a lot of the controversy arrived because each province had different regulators. Most of them were GPs and most of them didn't have a clue what oral and maxillofacial surgeons did. I remember that we were discussing sole admission because until about 1980-odd, we couldn't admit on our own. We had to get family doc or a surgeon or whoever you could find in the hospital to, to admit our patients. And we went to a, the RCDS in, in Ontario and told them this, and, and they couldn't believe what we did. They said, you we're doing skin grafts and they said, you actually look at a leg or you put a stethoscope on somebody's chest. And this to them was completely foreign. They said, how are we going to regulate you? Because, um, you know, they didn't know, they didn't know what we did. So then the training programs moved to four years and now they're transitioning to the six year program. We only have six oral surgery programs in Canada, all total. Five of them are going to be dual degree. And Manitoba is the lone holdout, and they're considering it. So 
that's the state of, of, of where we are in the scope of practice. We can talk about it a little bit later. I'd like to jump in uh, and make a couple of comments, uh, especially about uh, the really very unique aspect of North American oral surgery training and practice, and that is the use of office space anesthesia. From the American standpoint, the uh, office space anesthesia has been the training and practice model for over 90 years. And I think everyone who has a history of anesthesia knows that it was pioneered primarily by Dennis. And so looking back at this a little bit on the historical perspective, uh, prior to 1919, which uh, was the uh, beginning, uh, if you will, of oral surgery. Uh, dentists that practiced mostly mouth surgery, uh, exodontia, called themselves dental surgeons. And one of them, uh, which was uh, William Morton, and he is uh, the father of uh, ether anesthesia. And so with that, anesthesia has been always part of the dental surgeons, if you will. Uh, there's well, very good documentation in 1863, dental surgeon Thomas uh, Gunning. Uh, he actually was the dental surgeon for William Seward, who was the cabinet member under President Lincoln. And Seward had fallen out of his carriage and fractured his mandible. And so Dr. Gunning not only repaired his mandible with his now uh, well-known Gunning splint, but he did this under nitrous anesthesia. Uh, another history of point of, of the dental surgeon is uh, Dr. Uh, Fernando Hasbro from Philadelphia. And his, well-documented, it was the chief anesthesiologist for the treatment of President Grover Cleveland, who had an oral tumor removed in 1893. And that oral tumor was removed in secrecy on the presidential yacht, the Oneida, in the middle of the Potomac River. And he was the person providing ether anesthesia for the president at that time. And so th this involvement occurred. And now we come into the time frame of 1937 at the Mayo Clinic. The chief anesthesiologist there was Dr. John Lundy. And he is the father of IV thiopenethal anesthesia. The chief of oral surgery at that time was a Dr. Ed Staffing. And these two collaborated, and according to the story, is that a close relative of Dr. Lundy had a, a dental emergency, and it was treated by Dr. Staffney. And he was so impressed with the anesthesia that he begged him to learn the technique, which Dr. Lundy did indeed. And this IV thiopenethal technique was then utilized throughout the training at the Mayo Clinic for oral surgery residents. Now, coincidentally, the chief resident for Dr. Staffney was Adrian Hubble, and the junior resident at that time was Harold Croke. And so approximately 100 years after William Morton gave his lecture at the Etherdome in Massachusetts General Hospital, in 1945, Adrian Hubble and Harold Croke delivered this message of IV thiopenethal anesthesia, especially for, at that time, oral surgeons. Well, thereafter, you know, the whole concept of training anesthesia was established. It was actually codified. 
And and there was an agreement with the American Society of Anesthesiologists that indeed the anesthesiologists in hospitals would train the oral surgeons at that time. And so this is that development. This is the development where it is a true training program and we're required and that the minimum training anesthesia programs were six months. In current day, not only is it six months, but there's an absolute one month is dedicated to pediatric anesthesia. So what's pointed to the story is the fact that I had met a Dr. James Lundy, who was the direct descendant of John Lundy, and also spoke directly with Harold Krogh on this particular history. And so some of this is the anecdotal information I'm providing you. I can tell you that anesthesia is so embedded in the fabric of U.S. OMSs that the U.S. Navy requires an OMS on board on their large vessels for a dual role as an OMS, as well as an anesthesiologist. And likewise, for the U.S. Army, that an oral maxillofacial surgeon is to be in a brigade for uh, their medical services. Now, I can also tell you that over the involvement of anesthesia, uh, there has been many changes. And these changes were all for safety. I mean, in the change of safety, I mean, the usage of the medication. Uh, so from the early use of thio, sodium thiopentothal, uh, the change was over to sodium methahexatol in the 50s and 60s. The use of benzodiazepines that occurred in the late 60s as well. And even to this current day, I mean, the use of uh, diacylpropophenols are utilized as anesthesia usage. So the concept of anesthesia continues. It is a a major part of the practice and training. And so this is a, a unique aspect because anesthesia in oral surgery conjunctively is really not taught in any other areas other than North America. Uh, Dr. Doerr, do you want to add some comments uh, regarding the the, uh, Canadian uh, experience with anesthesia as well? It started out with um, the McKesson machine using triline, which made, it was a great, great volatile anesthetic, but it made people awfully sick. But it it really, along with the nitrous, worked really well. Then the sodium pentothal, then bryotol, and now it's it's mainly propofol, uh, fentanyl. Some people use ketamine, which is a great adjunct, and it's amazing. But what what I found is that some of the new grads would prefer to bring in medical anesthetists, and the medical anesthetists are very happy to come into the office because they then earn an income that's outside the government income, and so they're pleased to do that. But you're right, Art. This is... uh, this is an amazing adjunct to our to our specialty, and it's something that I couldn't have practiced without. Art, you mentioned the safety issue, and you know, going a little more towards the technology issue, not only have the medications significantly improved, but the monitoring that we are able to do now currently with pulse oximetry, which was probably the number one thing that turned around safety issues in anesthesia, not only medical anesthesia, but also in the anesthesia that we do also. And then currently the utilization of capnography, where you have an ongoing um, view of respiratory issues um, relative to the depth of 
of respirations and actual CO2 retention that you have in the systems. Um, so we really have a much better handle currently on how we're able to take care of patients in a much safer environment, utilizing current medications, utilizing current monitoring uh, that we do. Um, this goes completely to all the other areas that we use also, not only with the, the deep sedation general anesthesia, but also our uh, moderate sedation that we use also. That brings up to the fact that, you know, the uh, American Association uh, has really taken responsibility in the safety issue. And uh, the American Association, in fact, has an office base evaluation. And they require, uh, if you will, monitoring and uh, continuing education uh, in all aspects of anesthesia. And in fact, uh, if you don't follow those requirements, you can no longer participate as a member. And so the safety is a huge issue in the anesthesia as far as uh, the membership goes with the National Oral Muscle Surgery Organization. Also, you know, the collaboration with the anesthesiologists has been excellent. Uh, and with their help, I mean, the training of the oral muscular surgeon and anesthesia is, in my opinion, you know, bar none as far as uh, that aspect alone. But, you know, it is it's just unique. I mean, I, I don't know of any other oral mass special training uh, in the uh, global arena other than North America that, that trains anesthesia similarly as part of their program and training. I think as well, didn't the American Association of Anesthesiologists come out and say that, that they, they would support office anesthesia only given by oral surgeons and trained medical anesthetists. So they, they recognized that, that oral surgeons had a special ability. The other thing is the ACLS, everyone has to have an ACLS certification. So safety, you're right, is a, is a huge thing and it's, it's really come a long way. I was going to change gears completely and sort of talk about how we have progressed as a specialty. Um, so my uh, clinical areas um, are, are head and neck. And uh, so I'm just going to move into the head and neck arena just to sort of uh, allow the listeners to, to see how we have evolved in North America. So as, as, as many of the readers will, uh, sorry, listeners will know, um, um, head and neck pr predominantly was initially done by general surgeons and then a combination of plastics and in North America, ENT surgeons. Um, and then they sort of merged to create this American Head and Neck uh, uh, Society in collaboration uh, with their international organizations. In the US, uh, very early on in the 50s and 60s, we had several people that were quite interested in oral uh, oncology, uh, notably uh, Drs. Elmer Hume, Fred Henney, and Cord uh, Ladau. And these were uh, fairly esteemed chairs and chiefs of service in their respective um, in their respective institutions. Dr. Henney actually uh, trained a lot of future leaders, uh, Bruce Epker, uh, William Grau, Bruce uh, uh, McIntosh, and was a chair for many, many years. With this sort of leadership, this push to do head and neck slowly moved through the specialty, but really didn't take off until we had 
a few other leaders, notably Robert Mark from Miami, 1985. We had a Robert Ord, 1989 at Maryland. Um, Eric Dirks, 1992 at um, the uh, Oregon Health Sciences Program. And then we had Josie Hellman in 1994. And these four actually started fellowship programs in Head and Neck. And we call this the fellowships the third world wave in Head and Neck in the United States. And actually from these initial four programs, we have now evolved to 14 uh, fellowships that pass through our match system. And we have multiple head and neck people that have trained and have moved throughout the country. So head and neck has really um, evolved in the United States. And what's interesting along that time, along that same sort of period is that the ENT groups aren't able to fill their fellowships. And so Several oral and maxillofacial surgeons have actually done head and neck fellowships through ENT and then entered into the hospital system. Along that same line, I wanted to talk just very briefly about cleft and craniofacial as well. And as we know, the sort of father of uh, cleft craniofacial is Tessier. And many Americans actually went out to Tessier in Europe to learn with him. Um, and uh, specifically in the early 70s, uh, Bill Terry, Victor Maticus, and Scott McCallum went out there and spent some time. But quite a few Parkland uh, former uh, residents went out and they brought that experience back into the United States. And um, now in, in the United States, we have at least eight fellowships in cleft and craniofacial, and which has really expanded our role as well. And um, we do do cosmetics. There are several cosmetic fellowships uh, um, in and around the country. And their numbers, not actually, Larry, does anybody know the numbers? I wasn't sure of the exact numbers, but I think there's at least five fellowships in, in specifically in cosmetics as well. And what's nice is we have 101 training programs in maxillofacial surgery in the country. It's almost a 50-50 split in those programs that are single degree, i.e. just a dental degree. Uh, not, well, not just a dental degree, shall I preface. And then we have the other that where they obtain a medical degree during that training. And the data shows that many of the programs are exposed to this full scope, including cleft craniofacial and maxillofacial oncology. You know, you mentioned Fred Henney, and it's interesting that you mentioned him because Fred Henney was one of the individuals from the U.S. that was instrumental in founding the International Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgeons. He met in London. Uh, they met with uh, Sir Terence Ward, and together they helped found the IOMS, um, which had its first meeting in 1962. And, you know, Fred Henney was certainly one of the people that saw and foresaw the need for international understanding um, international training potential from that organization and other organizations and the relationships that were developed. Many of us were fortunate to be able to go to externships or even internships in a foreign country and learn surgery from some of the masters in other countries. And it certainly was through that beginnings in 1962 that those of us were able to take that training and come back and utilize it the way we are now. 
Yeah, that's great. And I think that's one of the things that's been so fabulous about having this international organization is that they have the the fellowships and uh, and we have the capacity to go elsewhere. I myself trained at five countries. I was just thinking as we were speaking today, I've spent some time in Asia, America and North America. And it's just a, a wonderful collaboration for us to be able to have that experience with other countries. To continue that conversation, you just mentioned about um, how IOMS was established and and some of the rich opportunities that have been made available because of of having the association. Let's chat a little bit more about how AOMS, CAOMS, in addition to IOMS, have really helped advance the specialty as well. What's your perspective on that, Doctor G? You would you like to get us started? Sure, I just certainly started that. I mean, what's happened is is that the specialty itself has grown leaps and bounds. And, and in order to have that, there has to be communication and there has to be an exchange of, if you will, knowledge. And what we just heard, of course, is the fact that, you know, there are U.S. oral mass special surgeons have been traveling to Europe. Uh, it's also gone the other way around. I mean, there have been Europeans, Asians, um, South Americans all, that have also traveled to the U.S. And that international feeling, the international openness, is really part of how the International Association and the organizations of AOMS and the Canadian Association has really grown and has strengthened the entire profession uh, with that communication. And what's really been great that I've seen over the years and, uh, is the fact is, is that uh, this giving of information is freely. I mean, to travel and to be able to gain knowledge. I mean, in all reality, there's no strings attached. It is a true, honest exchange of information knowledge. And this is one of the great credits to oral mass special surgeons worldwide. So I, I think when you look at these organizations, they only strengthen each other. Uh, and, and that, in my mind, is one of the key elements of what we're talking about. Larry, you want to add on? Well, you know, the international conference that we have every two years, you know, certainly brings together a multitude of talent, the the best of the best in all countries. Um, we certainly try not to repeat speakers on a too frequent basis at those conferences because we certainly like to see new talent that is coming up in the world to see what new things are happening. And I think that's critical to it. We do want to hear from some of the masters, certainly as to how they've evolved. But I certainly think that that exchange of of knowledge is important. But not only the cultural aspect of that international conference is so, you know, so important. And, you know, unfortunately, we were unable to have that conference this year um, in Glasgow, Scotland, uh, due to the pandemic. However, in 2023, you know, and I'll take this over to Ed for a minute, you know, we're going to be having our meeting in Vancouver, Canada, and Ed is actually the session chair there of that meeting. Ed? Larry, I I agree with you, and I think that the the committees that that we're working on now are going to try and provide exactly what you said that that it's the the younger people the and 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 the masters but it's it's the international flavor of 
of the people that you just read about in the journals. You actually come and see them and they can present amazing, amazing things. And I think we've got the greatest specialty because there are so many aspects of our specialty that if we choose to do, we can. If we choose to uh, to do, just limit your practice, you can do that. But it's it's an amazing diversity. And hopefully Vancouver is, is, is going to be, I hope, a well-attended meeting. We're going to try and put on the best possible program we can, have some exciting um, social events and Hopefully everybody will come. And I, and I was going to say al- along that same line, thinking about these organizations, um, the organizations and all the specialties have really embraced the future when we think about the millennials, the next generation. So where we're using social media platforms, we have next generation. Um, Dr. Malesi has promoted women at, in surgery and the diversity. So the special specialties are doing a tremendous amount to be very inclusive, collaborative, and doing a lot of outreach for the younger generation where the younger surgeons think and learn in a different way. And I think that um, all of the the associations have done a a great job in uh, promoting what they do and also listening to the younger generation. I don't know, would anyone um, add anything to that? Well, the younger generation has been very active in the American Association. resident organization, or Roe Amos, began in 1994 in that organization when I was involved on the board, and they've become a very strong organization, a committee structure. They have officers. Uh, They provide a lot of input from that area. In a similar manner, the IOMS has their next-gen group, which has been very active and really become very active in the last few years, and that working together, again, starting those collegial ideas younger and earlier, earlier in the careers, allowing individuals to have long-term relationships that are built on trust and knowledge. And those, that I think is the way forward. And, you know, speaking of the way forward, Chaz, could you maybe talk about what uh, your thought is about where we might be in 10, 15 years? Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. First, we get get past COVID. Hopefully, we won't be on the Delta three variant. Who knows? We'll actually be meeting in person. Um, you know, I think that you know, as an educator and a program director, education is the key to all of this. And I think we're, uh, you know, as a, as a group and a networking, we're doing so much to be collaborative and getting these people on board. Um, You know, I think our future, our surgery is going to evolve. We're going to have more robotic, haptic evolution, especially in cancer with immunotherapy. Who knows? 15 years is probably too soon, but maybe in the next 50, we'll have eradicated a lot of this oncological diseases that we're managing currently. Um, But that's where I see us going. And I think that the world is, it's a big place, but it's also a relatively small place, given how easily accessible we are to one another. Larry, Larry, if you want to look at the future, you really should take a look at the past. And when I think of, of the things that we did back in the 1960s, the problems of, uh, that we had then, the problems you have now, just take one, one instance, the atrophic mandible. Now, back in the 1960s, 
we had very little we could do with that. We would uh, do some bone grafting, maybe put a rib graft on, knowing that in five years that that graft is going to be gone. Uh, the visor osteotomy, uh, materials that we put under the uh, under the tissues to uh, what was it? It was a Gore-Tex material. I forget what it was to build it up. All that stuff. And now look at what you have because of technology. The advances that we've made in oral maxillofacial surgery from when I was a resident to now, I think has been dominated by the uh, introduction of new technology, new materials. And I think that's probably what is gonna drive our profession in the future. Jazz mentioned robotics. Uh, We're just getting into robotics. And I mentioned before that it's, it's, uh, practices are going to be office-driven rather than hospital-driven. So uh, I, th- I see the future, you know, uh, dependent heavily on our associations working, continuing to work with the uh, industry, which we have been successful in the past, both on a national and international level. When you think that uh, Obergeiser came from Europe, brought his techniques to the United States where they were refined, Many of the instruments were picked up by Walter Lorenz and added to and evolved into uh, things that we could never never use 40 years ago. So the future, I think, is going to be very highly technologically driven. Yeah, and actually, if I'm going to be comedy too, is I think not only is technology, but certainly the new medicine, uh, especially when you're looking at stem cell and reconstruction will change. Uh, growth will change as well. The diagnosis will be even better. But I also see a change in the oral mass special surgeon. I mean, the, with the atmosphere we have now, the oral mass special surgeon is becoming more office-based than hospital-based in their clinical uh, repertoire of doing surgery and treatment. And I, I think the creations of the uh, office-based surgical centers by oral surgeons is probably one of the areas that will slowly move to not only because so many techniques can be done in an office setting that's quite safe, uh, certainly uh, economic impact regarding insurance coverage and whatnot is also changing that as well. And then certainly governmental influences as far as uh, how procedures are perceived as well. So I think technology is going to be one of the great areas. I think certainly the, uh, you know, the, the stem cell genomes and the, that concept is clearly going to change uh, the practice of oral mass facial surgery as well. And so it's going to be a very interesting next 15, 20 years that occurs and how rapidly it occurs. So, you know, I think in some areas, this will probably be a little bit more rapid than even uh, Dr. Dillon has anticipated because it's become exponential and not uh, normal reading it of uh, Evolvement. It's become quite exponential. Ed, any thoughts? I think the other thing with the um, with the society is that the residents are participating much much more now than they had in the past. We've got residents groups, and the the earlier that we can get the residents involved and the younger people, the better that uh, that our specialty is going to be. Well, I'd like to say in closing, you know, thank you for listening to this podcast. You know, I think tonight, you know, we presented a thumbnail sketch of oral and maxillofacial surgery in North America. 
both the American Association view and the Canadian Association view. We've tried to give five views of the specialty from its history, its evolution, and continuing ongoing evolution of its scope of practice. I think it's incumbent on all of us to consider where the IOMS fits into this wheel. And I think the IOMS certainly is the glue that brings all six regions together of the world. It allows us to interact. It allows us to progress. And without the IOMS, you know, we are not the group that we should be. So let's remember where we came from, where we're going, and remember, let's continue to support our national organizations as well as the International Associations of Oil and Maxillofacial Surgeons. Thank you for participating. Thank you again for joining us today. Visit us online at www.iaoms.org to become a member of our vibrant global community and to access a variety of education and timely resources. Stay up to date by following IOMS on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast while you're here so you're the first to know when new episodes are released. Until next time. Thank you.